Welcome to VSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. I'm Randall Hayes. I may have mentioned that I'm somewhat hooked on nature documentaries. I watch them on my own, and I use them in my teaching. Currently, I have zero experimental evidence that they work, or even that my students like them. But they were important to me personally growing up, and many of my students are what we politely call reluctant readers. So the currently untested theory is that the TV shows will serve as an information scaffold to help students build concepts, which will then be reinforced when they read. Of course, it could backfire and make the students even less likely to read. I know that's possible because I've seen it happen when professors lecture on the material that a student was supposed to read but didn't. Why should they when they can get much of the same information in an easier way? There's actually a good bit of game theory that goes into thinking about how teachers and students negotiate their workloads. Uh, Those are questions that I'll be working on for years. But for today, here on VSI, it's Bear Week which is considerably less famous than Discovery Channel's Shark Week. Several things came together to make me declare Bear Week! Uh, The biggest was that for the past five days, a 60-pound black bear has been roaming my neighborhood. As I'll go into a bit more detail later, this is a fairly normal thing in, say, Anchorage, Alaska, but in Greensboro, North Carolina, And I don't even live on the outskirts of town. I live in one of those first-ring 1950s suburbs with the little white houses. True, there's some kind of connected parks creating a green-ish northern wedge of the pie, but the last bear sighting inside the city limits was like three years ago. So this bear caused a minor sensation within the city. I'll link to the news coverage and to the Bears Facebook page on the website, but let me just describe one scene that I actually witnessed myself. Tuesday afternoon, Bear was up in a tree along Battleground Avenue, which is at that point, I think, five lanes. In any case, it's a busy major thoroughfare. As my wife and I left the house for lunch, we noticed a very put-upon policeman manning an orange cone roadblock on a residential side street. I walked up to him to ask if any of the other streets were blocked, uh, just as a police department truck came by with bottled water, and one of my neighbors who lives on that street came home to walk his dog. I've got ID if you need to see it, he sort of hollered out the window. I don't need to see no ID, policeman said as he pulled some cones out of the guy's way. You live here. I'm just here to keep the onlookers out, and hopefully he'll come down from that tree. As the guy drove on through, the policeman shook his shiny head. It's pretty hot out already, even for North Carolina. And he kind of growled, never seen so many people wanting pictures of a bear. And I totally get that. I mean, there's a pretty good zoo, which has bears, and a lot of other stuff, only about 30 miles away, 
outside of Asheboro. Why tie up traffic when you could just go to the zoo? As we continued to lunch, uh, my wife and I had some fun marveling at the people slowing down to gawk at the bear. I saw one middle-aged man stopped at a light, get out of his car, walk back to the car behind him, and start pointing emphatically up the street. It was like a scene from a disaster movie or something. And as we came back from lunch, of course, being the complete hypocrites that we are, we also drove up Battleground ourselves, uh, past a television news truck and a group of about 30 people with cameras pointed into a patch of woods surrounded by that yellow crime scene tape. At least we didn't slow down, and thus we did not get to see the bear directly. I was only mildly disappointed by this because I understand that policeman's frustration, but I also teach, and anything that engages people's attention interests me. And this totally did, for a short period of time at least. There were actually groups of teenagers roaming my neighborhood on foot that whole afternoon, even after the bear did come down and sat next to the tree watching the traffic and the roadblock was removed. The Greensboro Bear currently has over a thousand friends on Facebook. Last seen Wednesday morning near Lake Jeanette, more towards the edge of town. As I said, I'll link to the local media, which has some pretty cute videos. They also explain why they didn't just trank the bear and drive it out of town, like the barstool game wardens at Starbucks kept suggesting. It turns out those drugs take a lot more time to work than you'd think from watching the edited footage of a documentary. So is it purely the novelty driving this interest? For some people, I guess it probably is. Next week, they'll chase some other sparkly ripple across the surface of the internet. But at the same time, I can't help seeing a real hunger for some kind of connection to the natural world. I'm always trying to encourage that, and not just in the biology majors, but in everybody. I mean, we can't all live in Anchorage, which backs up to a huge state park in Alaska, and where it's not white-tailed deer eating people's gardens, but thousand-pound moose. Where during any one summer, there'll be not one, but six or seven black bears popping out of the park to raid bird feeders. Apparently, they really like sunflower seeds. How do I know that? Well, I am addicted to nature documentaries. And as a huge coincidence, I had saved on the DVR this week a three-episode bear extravaganza called Bears of the Last Frontier, where a biologist named Chris Morgan travels the lengths of Alaska profiling all three species of bears and the different habitats that they live in. Black and brown bears are supposed to be these fearsome predators, but they're actually more like us. They'll eat just about anything they can find, so their diets depend entirely on what grows in that place, whether it's salmon along the rivers, and the bears get really big there, or berries on the tundra, or grasses in the alpine meadows. I myself have been slightly weirded out watching grizzlies graze like cows on new grass in Yellowstone. Polar bears, on the other paw, are carnivores, almost as specialized as cheetahs. They mostly hunt seals out on the frozen ocean during the winter, while the other bears are sleeping. 
If you think evolutionarily, anytime you see that level of specialization for a specific environment, there's got to be a trade-off. Sure, the polar bears can't lose out on the ice, but if that environment goes away, which it is, they're screwed unless they can merge their bloodlines back into the much larger and more genetically diverse grizzly gene pool, like Corbin was talking about with the desert toads a couple weeks ago. That's the same deal with panda bears, who are specialized bamboo eaters, and they're likewise evolutionarily vulnerable to any big changes in their habitat. In other words, you can't be both specialized and resilient at the same time. The third coincidence of the week, which in any mystic's mind moves you out of coincidence territory and into conspiracy territory, was that I'm rereading Thinking in Systems by Donella Meadows, planning for this mathematical, this mathematical modeling class that my chair wants me to teach. I'll do a more detailed review of that book a different day, but for the moment, it's a really good general reader-type introduction to nonlinear dynamical systems. Systems that evolve, those that display variation, selection, and inheritance, are examples of nonlinear dynamical systems. One of the things she says in that book is that we humans are really actually pretty good at intuiting what the control points of those kinds of systems are, but we usually push those levers in exactly the wrong direction because our goals are almost always for short-term control, which creates long-term vulnerability. So, and here's the coincidence. There was another episode of Nature on the DVR this week called Salmon Running the Gauntlet, detailing the absolute havoc the western states wrought on their billion-dollar salmon populations by trying to narrowly optimize both the breeding of the salmon and the flow of the rivers that they breed in. It was a really striking case of good intentions and bad assumptions. This kind of unpredictability of nonlinear systems like ecosystems depresses some people. You know, if you can't control it, then what's the point? Personally, I'm more hopeful. Precisely because those systems are nonlinear, they can sometimes recover almost as quickly as they can crash. Human cultures are also examples of nonlinear systems because most humans don't really think critically about what we do. We just copy what the people around us are doing. So it's really a function of people choosing to copy long-term sustainable behaviors instead of short-term destructive behaviors. So the real problem is, how do we make sustainability cool, or sick, or whatever the hell the word is right this minute? This is our 10th episode, which seems like a good place to wrap up the first season. Do stay tuned, because I'll spend the next couple months blogging my travels and maybe posting preview snippets of conversations that I'm recording as I go. Uploading full episodes requires longer times with better connections than I expect to have consistently. But I will be updating the website and filling in all those links and resources that I've been promising you. For instance, you can watch full episodes of Nature at pbs.org, including all four of the ones that I mentioned today. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with support from the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution Action. Thanks for listening, 
have a good summer.